Hey, you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today we talk to Jim Riley. You might know Jim as the drummer for Rascal Flatts. He is that, but he's also an author and educator. As a matter of fact, he's got a brand new book coming out this spring. Find out more about this podcast and other podcasts on WorkingDrummer.net. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Here is Jim Riley. Yeah, absolutely. You're uh, you're my ninth interview uh, so far. We've cool. done um, we've I think our fifth interview every Wednesday. We've been able to put one out. Mark Beckett is yeah. our fifth interview. He's, mm-hmm. He comes out today. Cool. Uh, last week was uh, Greg Loman, and that yeah. was a really great one. Oh yeah, Greg's yeah. Greg's awesome. He's got a great story too. Uh, Interesting drumming story, you know, with uh, coming up as kind of a Phil Collins lefty. Yeah, and and then being completely like turned around in college and surviving that, and then you know being you know really you know he's still a great player. Yeah, yeah. It it was a it was so funny because uh, it was uh, the week before the Neil Peart tribute, and we talked about that, and he, which he kicked a lot of ass on. I thought, I, and he told us what song he was going to play, and I was like. So, like, immediately afterwards, I sat in my practice room and I was messing around with free will, trying to learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it, inside and out, and then saw him play, and up here like this. I know, I was standing right next to him. And I was like, that was amazing. Yeah, he he has to, he realizes that he lives in a righty world, and he has to, and you know, um, when I heard that his teacher had said that, you know, um, you know, you need to you need to switch over to a right-handed kit. I thought, wow, that's... I don't know if I agree with that. But, you know, opportunities like that Neil Peart thing yeah. wouldn't have been a possibility. If he was le- if he was completely left-handed, he would not have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe there was something to it. I, I haven't always agreed with it. It's, it's a question that I still wrestle with. But I'm tending now to unless somebody is and I, I use this as an in a joking term, unless someone is hopelessly left handed. Mm, I yeah, um yeah, yeah. I, I usually um I usually will will start them on a right handed kit. Mm, and and, and just go righty because I go, well if you're gonna be in the drum line, they're gonna make you they're gonna make you um play righty. Right. You know, so I'm tr- in a sense I'm doing you a favor <laughs> and I sympathize with left-handed people because, I mean, I I'm pretty sure that I was a naturally left-handed person that was just interesting compelled to do everything righty. But the, there's many things that I do uh, left-handed. The things that I do left-handed are the things that nobody taught me how to do. Like no one said, "Here, here's how you shoot pool." So I shoot pool left-handed. Oh wow! No one said, "Here's how you shoot a BB gun." So if I've got like a rifle BB gun. Yeah. Um, I've got it up on my left shoulder, and I'm clearly left eye dominant. I was just in the doctor's, the eye doctor's office uh, two days ago. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it was like it was not even close. Wow. I'm very wow. left eye dominant. So, you know, uh, and there's a lot of things like I do a one handed roll on marimba a lot better with my left hand than mm-hmm. I do with my right. I just mm-hmm. have there's certain things. So I've been able to use it as a uh, 
as an advantage instead of sure. instead of a disadvantage, and so that's what that's the way I try to sell it to my young students. Yeah. Do you ever do any open hand things? That, I, with don't, that? I don't. I okay. don't. I really um, my my hands kind of have a role, and and yeah. I am um, I, I I keep that role intact yeah. rather than you know divide it up. Okay. You know, I'm, I've got my my right hand is my is my timekeeping role, and my my left hand. Is uh, you know is the backbeat role, and I just that those I don't really uh, I I find if I mit, if I mess with that that they both suffer a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting talking about Steve Gorman and all the things that he's gotten, uh, kind of the things that he's been juggling uh, aside from what he's the gig that he's been known for, mm-hmm. and the gig that you've been known for, Rascal Flats. That's uh, whole discussion, but I want to talk about kind of what you're doing aside from that, because mm-hmm. uh, I think almost all our, uh, anyone that listens to this is going to know Rascal Flats and somewhat some of the history and all that stuff and the time. First of all, how long have you been with them since um, the beginning? I, yeah, it's uh, I'm going into my 16th uh, touring year with them. Okay, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've been there, you know, through everything, you know. Uh, Three management companies, uh, two record labels, yeah. you know, c- countless road managers, uh, you know, kind of, we're almost in kind of the third band of people wow. now. So we just yeah. we just hired two new musicians, which completely changed the complexion of the band. And, uh, you know, I've been musical director for, you know, 15 of the 16 years, which we can certainly get into. Um, but, uh, yeah... Aside from the the Rascal Flats thing, I mean, I've always had a passion for teaching. Okay. So I got my degree in music education from the University of North Texas, and I remember I was sitting with uh, one of my advisors right before I graduated. He said, "Well, where do you see yourself in five years?" I said, "Well, I see myself out pursuing pursuing." Uh, a career in uh, playing. Yeah. And so he asked me, uh, well, you know, then why are you getting a degree in music education? I said, well, I said, I, I've always wanted to be the kind of educator that could teach from the perspective of someone who's done it in the real world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like that that's one of the, the things that I can bring that's uh, a little bit uncommon. It, I think there's a lot of people that are world class players, and there's some people. There's a lot of people that are world class teachers, and some there's not a lot of times that those those meet. Right. Um, but that's you know what I've what I've tried to do. I've tried to uh, you know be a uh, a world class player that can you know convey the ideas mm-hmm. to uh, to a twelve year old. Yeah. And um, so I've I've taught for years. And uh, when I moved to the, this house here uh, in Sumner County in Tennessee, um, I decided that I was uh, going to start a program that was very similar to uh, something a friend of mine uh, named Dr. Dennis Rogers was doing up in, uh, in Missouri, which is taking the concept of like piano lab where you've got a teacher and you've got several pianos and they're they're all all the kids are like listening on uh headphones yeah. and the piano the teacher can listen to all the kids play piano 
uh, which is something that I did in college. And uh, what Dr. Dennis Rogers was doing is he, he had uh, a similar situation with drum set, where he was uh, teaching multiple drum set players at the same time, which for me solved a lot of problems. Um, the first problem is, uh, well, they're both time. Um, the first issue is that, you know, because I play with Rascal Flats, so generally we'll leave on like a Wednesday night when we're touring, yeah. and I'll go play Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I only have, you know, I'm not going to teach on Sunday. So I've only got Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evenings, early evening, to teach. So I've got a very limited window mm-hmm. of time, but I wanted to be able to teach you know, a lot of young people. So having them in groups is one advantage there. The second advantage is also time. My time is limited, so my time is valuable to me. Um, I mean, this is going to sound like, you know, more egotistical than it is, but I haven't mowed my own lawn (laughs) for, like, I don't know, like, you know, since I moved into this house, so like eight, eight years or something, and the reason is, and, and this is absolutely legitimate, is I can't afford the time to mow my own lawn because my time is more valuable than it is for me to pay a guy to do sure. my uh, my lawn. Because any time that I'm, if I'm doing that, that's time I'm not spending with my family or right. I'm not teaching. Right. And, you know, so like... You know, my my private lesson rate is a lot more than it is to to pay someone to, to mow my lawn. Yeah. So, um, like, my time becomes really limited because it's like, okay, I'm going. I, if I'm if I'm getting home on Sunday and then I'm teaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening, I'm leaving Wednesday night. It's yeah. not a lot of time left. No. So no. every every moment of it that I get to spend with my family is super valuable. And, and so I've had to put a premium on it. Right. And are your kids in school? I have a six, six year old that's in school. I have uh, a two year old and a uh, two month old. Wow. And okay. uh, so some couple of them are home. Yeah. Two of them are home right now with my wife. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I, so like my, my private lesson rate is like $80 an hour. Well, I want to teach kids. Kids can't afford $80 an hour. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So what I've done is I go, okay, well, if I have them in group lessons, yeah. then I can teach them, uh, you know, if I'm teaching, say, four kids, and that's $25 a piece, well, that's more than my private lesson rate, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and if I'm teaching three kids, that's really close. Um, but some of the really unexpected benefits have been... The um, the social aspect for the kids, you know, oh, okay. we get we get in this room yeah. that we're in right now, which is my waiting room. But we really yeah. use this as the uh, the warm up room. So we'll sit here on the practice pads, and it's the one time in the lesson where I've got all the kids in arm's length, and I can work on the mechanics of their hands and their arms oh, as they're yeah. playing. Yeah, um, and then. Um, I'm going to get a couple pictures of, of this, too, because I, yeah. I love this. But, this the, uh, but yeah, the, the social aspect of it is, uh, is, is pretty good. Um, the other thing that, that was really unexpected was there's a positive peer pressure where 
like, okay, if you're taking lessons with some guy, you could go in and suck for a half hour, and nobody knows but you and the teacher that you sucked. But when you go into a lesson with your teacher and four other kids, right? you know, you're not going to like being bad. No, you know? no. And, and additionally, you're going to be like, wow, that, you know, that kid's really getting it. I mean, I should be getting it, you know? So there's this positive peer pressure. I've got some kids that are literally the best kids in the entire state at, in their age group. I've taught them since they're in the sixth grade. They're now in the 10th grade. And all they've been concerned with, almost to the point of tears, is being better than that other kid. Yeah. They've spent so much time trying to be better than the kid next to them that the two of them have obliterated everybody <laughs> in the whole state. Wow. Wow. You know? So that, uh, that, that competition that they've there's created a, really, between there's, the two. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and it's, I don't pit them against each other because yeah. what, I, what, what happens is, is, what, is what's the real life of, of drummers, which is um, one day... We're competing against each other. The next day, we're playing in a group together. That's what drummers do. I mean, we we play in in, in groups. I mean, uh, I've always played in drum lines and percussion mm-hmm. ensembles right. professionally. Uh, I was even called last year. Um, uh, the um, Little Big Town called me to put together a drum line oh, wow. for a television appearance. Yeah. So. I was able to call a bunch of the dudes in town uh-huh. that have DCI experience, yeah. and we put together this uh, this great drumline thing wow. for uh, for them. And so it's just another. And these are all guys that you know. There's been years past that hey, some of these guys are all up for the same jobs, trying to get the same jobs. But right. at the end of the day, we have this kind of brotherhood and sisterhood of drummers, and we understand that. You know, sometimes we're competing against each other, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're playing together. And th- these kids understand that as well. They play in the same drum line, but when it comes to competition, they want to beat the heck out of each other. Sure, sure. You know, and uh, so that's been very positive. And so my goal with with this program is to get kids college ready. So I start them in the sixth grade. I keep them all the way through the twelfth grade. Uh, we talk about you know career. We talk about college. Um, and I have to make sure that they can play everything from, you know, classical and marching snare drum to, um, to, to marimba, to timpani, to, uh, to Latin percussion and of course drum set. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, cause I, I want the kids to be, you know, at least, you know, a mirror of, of my own experiences and hopefully better. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, to go, okay, here are my shortcomings and I want to, Make sure that their shortcomings, my shortcomings, don't become their shortcomings. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, try to make sure that they're as diverse as possible, and even on the drum set, making sure that their abilities on the drum set are not one-dimensional in any way. Making sure that you know they can play jazz, they can play world yeah. styles, right? Uh, they can play rock, they can play metal, they can play country, they can play whatever. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I saw you a couple years ago. You did a clinic in town. It was great, man. It was, I mean, it was. Which it was, one was that? Uh, you and Chris McHugh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was many years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was the first time I knew you were doing clinics at the time because I knew you did had uh, participated with Drum Days at Clinics. Yeah, which was an amazing event. Yeah, That's a, it's been anyone who ever gets a chance. 
Um, just a real quick word about drum days. Um, when I did when I did drum days, um, it I mean Modern Drummer Festival. I did Modern Drummer Festival the same year. Okay. Um, which was an incredible honor to do that. Sure, sure. Um, that drum days uh, was just as special to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, the, the the Modern Drummer Festival I did was actually the last Modern Drummer Festival. Um, they haven't done one. But what they did last year was they actually got behind Drum Days. And now yeah. Drum Days is kind of you know, is kind of Modern Drummer Festival now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the one that Modern Drummer Fest, Modern Drummer has gotten behind. It's an amazing festival. Uh, so, I mean, and it's centrally located because it's up in uh, Columbus, Ohio yeah. at the beautiful Capitol Theater. Yeah. And um, anyone who's got a chance to go to that, go to it. I mean, it's worth buying a cheap plane ticket yeah. to go to Columbus. Yeah. You can fly southwest probably, yeah. get into Columbus. Uh, and it's definitely worth going. They always have an amazing lineup. Sure. And I hope one day to be on that lineup again with them because I had just well, I had looking, a tremendous time. I'm seeing who's all uh, been on there. I see, well, Alex Acuna was on when when you were there, and that was his I, maybe his second time because he it was his second or third time, for right? Because sure. he was on the first one, and I was there with. The, I worked at Columbus Pro yeah. Percussion for five years, and that's my hometown. So well, I'm when you were working excited. there, I I had the year that they had Sheila E. was not there that that year. I think that was the first year I was gone. I was the, the year they had Sheila E. I was actually confirmed on that one. Okay. And something happened with an artist rep who act very accidentally and innocently pulled me off of it because he thought that I was busy. He thought because I was oh, doing no. a certain television no. show. So was it like 2000 maybe? No, it wasn't that late. It wasn't that late. It was more like... Uh, you know, 2007 or oh, okay, something like okay, that. Yeah, I was long gone. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, that 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 one, there was a, a, a Billy Cobham was on it and Sheila wow. was on it, <laughs> and I was so psyched to go up there and do it, and then um, I found out after it was way too late that I had been pulled off of it by one of my companies yeah. who who had called them and said. Jim's not available, which I actually was available. Oh no! Um, and so it was a real drag, and I was I was kind of devastated about it. And so then, you know, a couple of years later, I, I called I called uh, Jim. Yeah. And I just said, hey, you know, I know things got sideways with us a couple of years ago, but I would love to do your festival. Mm-hmm. And he said, cool, book me on the next one, and uh, that's the one that I did. And uh, yeah, that's a tremendous festival. Yeah. Shout out to Jim Rupp. He's one of the sweetest. Yeah. Guys in the business. I'm going to try to see him this summer. I'm going to be there on, on, on Saturday okay. uh, this summer, and I'm going to try to convince him to let me do a drum clinic up there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. I, I remember when uh, Kenny Arnoff was in town, and he called. He goes, hey, I'm in town for the next two days. Can I stop by? Total impromptu type thing. Yeah. I think we had maybe 12 people there, you know, for this last-minute thing. But it was... Uh, it, it, Jim's it's it's been amazing to kind of nurture that environment in in Columbus. Let me ask you about that because it, it I mean when you're doing a clinic 
individually, say, just a drum clinic like you would at Columbus yeah. Percussion, as opposed to drum days, when it's your time to mm-hmm. shine, how do you prepare? What's what's the difference between those two things that you're going to do? When you have a clinic open, what, hour and a half, and then you have... Yeah, I mean, when you do the festivals, they're shorter yeah, time periods. Right, they're, right. they're 50 or 60 minutes, like mm-hmm. I've done... I've done PAS and I've done you know Columbus Drum Days and, and Modern Drummer Festival and those are short deals so you ha- you have to be prepared mentally for the fact that it's going to go by like that right you know you can you can't go over mm-hmm. so you have to kind of rehearse what you're going to say what mm-hmm. you're going to do yeah um, a little bit you know. You have to definitely edit yourself. You can't just ramble on about things or just go off on a tangent. You've got to be very calculated about what you're going to do. On the on the longer things where I'll do an hour and an hour and a half, I've found myself into hour and forty five minutes. Um, I do some different things. I tend to uh, I, I, I focus on creating a foundation of technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I focus on, um, you know, like how to create parts, like 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 from a mental standpoint as a drummer. Uh, I, I talk about um, like a diversity of knowledge of, of different styles, okay. uh, and uh, and and I also try to make sure that I'm entertaining the crowd because I. I think there's a balance there. I've been to clinics where, and I enjoy drum clinics. I've been to clinics where drummers just blow for 45 minutes, and then they yeah. say, "Is there any questions?" And then right. everyone goes, "No, I'm dumbfounded. I don't. I don't even know what you just did." Yeah. And then they blow for another 15 minutes, and then they're done. Um, and then I've been to clinics, and I think I've done a couple clinics where there was just too much talking, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and people want, I mean, they're drummers. They want to hear you play drums. Yeah. So, right. you know. That balance has to be Yeah, there. the balance has to be there. And so you have to make sure to prepare enough moments where you're, you're educating and you're also entertaining. Right. And the right. final aspect for me is interaction. Yeah. Um, and that is... That can is something a lot of people don't do in clinics because it gets downright uh, risky when you start pulling random people out of the audience. I you saw never you know. do that. I saw you do that. And that was one of the things. I mean, it, it was it seemed very organized, and you were going from one thing to another. Drum solo on the set. Uh, you uh, sang a jazz tune while yeah. you were soloing around to kind of demonstrate that you pulled somebody out of the audience. This was years ago, so I'm trying to put. Yeah, remember yeah, no, what I you remember. You, as you say that, I'm, I'm kind of getting the rhythm of that. I don't know how it's changed. It's now. changed drastically. Okay, okay. It's changed. Well, drastically. I enjoyed it, and I learned it's, some stuff. But it has sure. to. It has to change yeah. because um, because people come to see me again and I don't want to give them the same thing yeah. over and over again. You're like a comic. You have to keep your stuff fresh. Well, you do have to keep your material <laughs> fresh. And so when I did uh, Columbus Drum Days and Modern Drummer Festival, I had written two brand new uh, compositions just for those. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, I've used them since, but uh, like, like they're just about to be temporarily retired because I mean I'm so excited about 
the um, all of the materials in the audio materials for my new book. Right, and we'll talk about that too. Yeah, and um, you know, and that's going to really refresh my clinic situation as well because uh, the new book that I'm doing is uh, Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer. It's going to be coming out uh, Alfred Publishing. And uh, although technically I'm the publisher, they're the dis- distributor. Okay. Um, which basically means that I'm just spending a truckload of money to do this myself. Mm. And then they they will be distributing the okay. books. So because they're taking less risk up front. Right, right. They, they get less reward on the back. Whereas like with a traditional, like my last book that I did with Hal Leonard, um, they gave me an advance. And then... Um, I have to recoup that advance, but they're taking the risk up front. They're sure. they're paying the advance, they're paying for the printing, they're doing yeah. all that stuff. And so then, you know, like when I would sell like a twenty dollar book on Amazon, they would sell my book. I get two dollars. Okay, that's just reality. Yeah. People go two dollars. It's ridiculous. Well, two dollars. Then it's ten dollars wholesale. So I'm getting twenty percent of wholesale on those books. Yeah. Um, but. When you publish the book yourself, you yeah. can flip the numbers around a little bit. Okay. And I'll be getting a greater percentage. I see. And so I, you can only do that if you really believe in your book. And I, I really believe in my book. So I'm, you know, spent. I've spent the last four years working on the book, but I've been recording on that book for about a year and a half. Okay. There are my first book had ten play along examples. This book has well over a hundred play along examples. Wow. Well what was the was the old okay, so how many books have you done so far? I, I know you have the national number that, system. That book is my is my first book and this book is my second book. Okay. So is so this new one is the third? No, this book this new the one national number about, system was is the my, first my one first book. with the ten play alongs. Yes. Gotcha. Um, which are tremendous and it's a great book. And I love that book and I'm very proud of it. But you know the Nashville number system is a very, uh, it's one of it's like one of those kind of holy crap ideas. Like you go, wow, this opens up so many possibilities. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is that people uh, sometimes are unwilling to realize how much the Nashville number system could help them. Like, why it, is that? Why do you think that is? Because it's it's just for some reason it's it's foreign to them. Yeah. Uh, it's not taught in schools, yeah, and it should be because they're teaching. They're teaching basically uh, an eighteen hundreds version of the Nashville number system mm-hmm. in every college in America, mm-hmm. and yet the Nashville number system uses the exact same philosophies that they're teaching. Only it's applicable to today's music, and yeah. they're not teaching yeah. it, which is to me bordering on insanity but if i was to take up that cause and just be like i'm gonna, i'm not going to rest until every college in america is teaching the national number system i would probably die a very unhappy man. <laughs> so right it's that's pretty yeah high. so i i, I kind of go listen if you want to be a better musician you want to have a, a better way to chart your tunes out you want to have an amazing way to think about music you know getting in, get into that book and it will it will literally and I, I don't mean this in any like crazy way it will literally change the way you think about music yeah I'll tell you that but having said that I knew when I wrote the book that it was a niche market 
Yeah. And so yeah. with this new book, um, I mean, if I'm being honest with myself, like drummers are my market. My, drummers are people who understand who yeah. I am. Yeah. And and my new book is targeted towards making those people better uh, and more prepared to be a professional player. And to be a professional player, and I've heard many people um, talk about this, but you know, you cannot make yourself too specialized. You can't just say, I am a rock drummer. I am a metal drummer. I am a prog rock player. I am a jazz player, which you'll hear a lot. What are, I'm a jazz drummer. Well, me, I'm a working drummer, so mm-hmm. I have to do everything. If I get called to play jazz, which I do, I play jazz. If I get called to play metal, which I do, I play metal. If I'm getting called to play, you know, like very country stuff, uh, like my first um, artist gig was with a guy named Mark Chestnut. Yep. There's a bunch of shuffles and train beats and that kind of stuff. And then I went right from that to the opposite of that, which was at the time the most kind of pop version of a country thing, which was the Rascal Flats thing. Right. And um, I have to be a chameleon. And anyone who wants to work yeah. uh, on a regular basis has to be a chameleon. So what I did with that, with my new book, Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer, which will be out, um, you know, this spring, is I'm giving people a primer of every style. So, uh, we're, you know, we're starting from pop styles and, yeah. you know, we go into early rock, go get into swing, country, blues, uh, dance, fusion, funk, odd time, uh, world styles, you know, That's I mean, awesome. there's 10 chapters in it, probably left out one or two right there, but, um, it, it doesn't make anybody an expert on any of them, but like there's enough in, there's enough language like in the jazz section of my book to really get you started yeah. to really like you could you could you know you could play a gig with what I've given you yeah. in that in that book um, and then you know, the same with the Latin styles it gives you enough to cover you know when someone says you know play play a samba I've got three different sambas in there mm-hmm. you know play be able to play in the ningo play uh, a uh, you know songo mm-hmm. um you know, to play a tango, just to know what to play. Right. Some of them aren't even hard grooves. It's just knowing what, you know, basically what grooves that you're supposed to be aiming at. Um, it just gives you a really good, it's it's my survival bag of tricks, and so that's what I'm, I'm passing on in this book. It sounds like you have a lot of stuff, because in the past I've had that book, Essential Styles, I think Absolutely. it was called... And there was maybe uh, two or three examples uh, of different styles, but it was uh, one or two CDs that it came, or cassette tapes at the yeah, time. Yeah. So the, how the I Essential mean, Styles book? I mean, uh, that's Tommy's, Tommy Igo's book. You know what? It's not Essential Styles because uh, it's not Tommy Igo. Are you thinking about Houghton's? Yes, Steve Houghton's book. Yeah, maybe that's I got the Steve title is, wrong. Steve is an yeah. Um, but anyways, Steve's book was really the first to me of its kind. I have Steve's books. I have Steve's book. I have Tommy's book. Steve has actually become a, a little bit of a friend. I'm going to be up at Indiana University working yeah, with him yeah. this summer. Um, but, you know, Steve's book 
was monumental and it's still really valid because it had a couple of each right. style in it and it came with one CD and um, but how has that changed so that I know you say that started but but what's different now as far as like the way we learn technology that you have access to that everyone has access to how has that affected the way the students going to learn from like your book well, and what you're able there's to there's a couple of different ways I mean the first thing is like you look at at scope when you you look at at, at um, Steve's book, which yeah. is, like I said, which is totally valid today, there's a limited number. There's a limited number of uh, playalongs. Right. So you then you look at Tommy's stuff. The yeah. scope is a lot larger. Yeah. Um, and um, but you know when I looked at that, I looked at you know how how the book was um, was put together and went okay. Um, I, I feel like I've got my own spin on on this material, and I can look at the things that I think that are positive about the book, and I can look at the things that are negative, and go, okay, from the point where there was there was Steve's book, and then there was Tommy's book, how can I take the next sure. step? Sure. Um, and so one of the things was to make sure that all of the styles were played. By specialists in those styles, oh, so the play-alongs. Right. I've got the most badass country players playing on the country stuff. Mm-hmm. Metal guys playing on the metal stuff. Wow. You know, world-class jazz players playing on the jazz stuff. Um, guys that gig in Latin bands playing the yeah. Latin stuff. I use Lalo Davila from MTSU to help right, me right. with some of that stuff. But um, you know, really targeting like the right players so you feel like as a as a musician when you're as a drummer when you're playing along with this stuff that you are really immersed in a style that you're inspired in that style it's not like just a bunch of dudes playing you know trying to play that style the best they can right and um, the other thing I did in that book um, is I tried to shed light on uh, genres that are typically marginalized by educators Hmm. which Country, yeah, yeah, and metal mm-hmm. are almost never covered in legitimate books, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so I made sure to give those uh, those sections some real some real light, so that uh, you know people understood that there is more to those genres than than the average you know kind of college educated professor type people right, would right. Uh, would understand that there is mm-hmm. you know countries are you know it's some of the groove stuff is pretty deep you start getting into some of the train beat stuff that i get into on this stuff and uh it's a little heavy duty yeah you know and it's not easy yeah. um i think it's taken it, it, a lot of it's t- taken for granted it is definitely as, taken for granted and when i moved down here it was it, you know th- there was a stigma that was was Associated with country, especially uh, late '90s and, and different things, and, and my world just completely opened up. And you, the nuances, especially of some traditional grooves and things like that, uh, was really exciting to discover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, from a technology standpoint, one of the things that's going to be interesting about the book is um, I'll be very excited about the the iPad version of the book because. You know the the new book will come out, you know, later in the year, um, on iPad, and 
one thing that I did that's that neither of the, the, the books that um, that came before my book did because it's it's almost it's almost impractical is I um, I did an eight bar example of me playing every groove in the book every variation in oh, the wow. book so there are literally like I think 341 eight bar examples of me playing every groove in the book so when you when you look at it on paper and you go oh man I don't even know what that I don't even know where to start mm-hmm. then you can listen to it and go Oh, okay. I, I I get where this is going, and then yeah. you start to go. Okay, now I can now I can wrap my head around yeah. at least what this is supposed to yeah. be. Yeah. And um, and there was another interesting thing that I did, which was uh, on the notation, all of the bass drum stems are attached upwards to the hi hat oh. instead of. Down. Typically down, right. where you start writing all these dotted quarters, and you got sixteenth rests down there. Yeah, and I'm going. Yeah. I don't think about music like that. I think about everything from the linear perspective, mm-hmm. where the notes relate to the hi hat. And so when I'm teaching my students to play these complicated things, I'm going. You know, if it's all eighth notes, I go. Listen, every note is going to line up with. With the hi hat, you can see where it lines up. Yeah, and if yeah. it's sixteenth notes, it's like they're either going to line up with the hi hat, or they're going to be falling in between the hi hat notes. Right, right. And so you start to go, okay. Well, you think about it from that linear perspective, it makes it a lot easier to read. And so I, I, I made sure to to push that type of notation through. Okay. Was there any? Because you're covering so many styles. Was there anything? Because uh, I know you play so many different types of styles. But the, what there was was there one of the styles that you're like, okay, I need to take some time and really wrap my head around this before I sit down and record this. Yeah, honestly, there was. I mean, uh, there was one or two things where I was like, I mean, listen, you know, the, what I say in the book is 99 point something percent true, which is if, if I don't use the groove, it's not in the book. If it's not something, there was a couple things where I had to go, Boy, I, I gotta get a little bit better at this groove. And, and one of them that was really funny that kind of threw me a little bit that I had to practice a bit was the um, was the mambo. Oh. Um, just where some of the notes uh, fell. Um, Sometimes there's an accent push well, pull with Latin. Just this, uh, uh, I had to get better at, it. but this, you know, as an educator, one of the things, you know, people, are, you know, say, well, how, where do you, how do you have time to practice? And I'm like, the truth is, I don't have a lot of time to practice, <laughs> but I am behind the drums hours a day with my students. Yeah, yeah. And there are things that I've had to get better at because I want to get better for my students. Right. I'm trying to teach my students the right way. So like, like, um, I've gotten better at playing like my jazz waltz and keeping the the oh, high two hat. three the high hat uh, on two yeah. and three right. throughout what I'm doing, um, you know, I was like, if I'm going to teach them that that's the way that I wanted to do it, I had to get better at it. So you sure. know, years ago, I just started going, okay, I'm going to get better at this because I want to be a better example to right. my students. Um, so yeah, they they keep me honest. I hear that a lot. I hear that that, that those who teach a lot, uh, you you learn so much from your students 
from so many different perspectives because they're they're going to look to you to be able to perform and show them. So you have to have a complete grasp. You have to because they have to have confidence in, what, in yeah. you in what you do and how you do it. Yeah. So that mambo was one. Yeah. That uh, that I had to uh, get better in the process of all of my um, my my research. Um, I was. Um, I, I I've got kind of that uh, that Gad Mozambique mm. uh, that kind of that late in the evening. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I got better. I got better at that one. I had kind of discovered it and then rediscovered it. Those were probably two. I would say every other groove in the book was was things that I was already. Right. You know, really comfortable with. Yeah. But there was a couple things I was like, ah, I want to add a couple things and to you know challenge myself as well. Yeah. Yeah. Some people know the story, but um, yeah. I um. I was really considering where I was going to go after college because I, I, I acknowledged that Dallas was a, a great local market to, to be playing in, but it didn't have a lot of ties to national type gigs. But where are you from originally? I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. But I decided to go to North Texas. My uh, my band director uh, who, uh, in high school, a guy named Jerry Ash, that's since passed away. Um, he was a he was a trombone player, and he. Um, he played in the one o'clock at North Texas and he had kind of hipped me to the North Texas thing. And so as I checked it out, I realized that it was definitely the right place for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking for some place where I could study and play jazz and play drum set. But I also wanted to be in the, the, the classical uh, programs that they had. I wanted to play in the drum line and they had all of that. And I had, you know, probably the best jazz program in the country and definitely the best uh, drumline program for mar- for college marching in the country at the time mm-hmm. and uh, probably still and it was pretty unquestionable um, and so it was definitely the right the right spot for me um, so you know I, I went there and I, I declared as a jazz studies major and then I quickly realized that you know, I thought music education was a smarter uh, thing, which I had not considered. I didn't really know anything about it, uh, but I, I had not considered. So I changed my major to music ed mm-hmm. um, after my first semester, and uh, you know I had a really great experience there. Studied with uh, studied with Ed Sof, um, studied under the tutelage of uh, Dr. Robert Shatroma, who was running the program then, um, who had you know amazing students from anyone from. Uh, Matt Chamberlain to yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Keith Carlock, yeah. um, Rich Redman was there, Jason Sutter, uh, you know, a lot of guys that have had interesting rock careers. Um, you know, it was uh, it, it was uh, it was an incredible incredible time to be there, and um, you know, with with Doctor Shatroma and. Uh, you know, so I got my degree out of there, and one of the clinics that I had gone to was uh, was Larry London. Wow! And uh, so I'd been to a lot of drum clinics. I mean, they, they'd had a lot of great clinics, and um, 
I've been to all of them and learned something at every one of them. But there was something about Larry that I was like, well, wow, this guy, he is, you know, I mean, he, he as a young white kid, was playing on some Motown records when he lived in Detroit. He played with Elvis. Um, you know, he uh, played on, you know, Adrian Blue's, uh, you know, uh, one of his one of his uh, records. He played on the Journey, raced on radio yeah. record. Yeah. He played on Steve Perry's Back Talk, and by the way, had been playing on all of the pretty much all the big country records for twenty years. Yeah, and so I was like, wow, this guy. I got to meet him because I mean I think Nashville could really be a place for me. Yeah. And so I went and met him at the clinic before the clinic started. Uh, the clinic was at noon, so I probably got there about eleven, and introduced myself. And he was very nice. You know, he showed me his ridiculous bass drum pedal, which was insane. <laughs> what do you um, mean? I mean, you could not push it down. It was <laughs> like a joke pedal. Only joke. this giant, this man with these giant legs used this pedal and it was like you felt like a two-year-old trying to depress this pedal it was ridiculous <laughs> i've never heard that That's yeah crazy. well y- you will hear about it now ask anybody who knew him um eddie bears i just recently heard a story where eddie bears um was you know who who larry london took under his wing yeah. you know got him to play start playing drums on sessions and he ended up becoming as prolific as as larry you know yeah um, but Larry said, "Hey, you know, uh, play this gig for me. You know, I've got a I've got a kit set up. You know, you can just walk in and play it." And so he went and sat in, and, and he went and got to that drum set and had to run all around, like try to find a bass drum pedal because he tried to play the bass drum pedal and it was impossible to play. <laughs> it was impossible. Um, but uh, he was really great. We, we we talked about country music, which I just started getting into a little bit, being in Texas, you know. Right. And um, very gracious, um, you know, had the, the heart of a teacher and was like, you know, hey, when you come to Nashville, you know, give me a call. I'll bring you to a session, which is a story I've heard many, many, many times from right. drummers. Yeah. That he actually took, you know, on, on uh, sessions when they came to town. And, um, you know, long story short, um, that was the day that, um, that Larry was doing the, the drum clinic at North Texas and ended up, um, collapsing and, uh, he never recovered from that day. He went into a coma and ended ended up dying a couple months later. And, um, so I was like the last person to have like a really lengthy conversation with with Larry. And um, it just really cemented my opinion of of moving to Nashville because I was like, wow, this guy is so cool. And then he's such a great player. And I'm like, you know, that's the kind of person, uh, that's the kind of player I want to be, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've certainly had different career paths, but... um, but you know he definitely inspired. He was the catalyst. Me. Yeah, it was. He was. The, it was the. That was the. That was the tipping point for me. Sure. So um, I moved to Nashville in '97. Um, I'd actually lived in Kansas City for a couple years. Um, I was playing with a friend of mine named Jeff Sheets, who's kind of a rock guitar player, mm-hmm. and I was playing with a percussion ensemble that um, I, I still play with from time to time. Mm-hmm. Up there, like which is a 
kind of a professional corporate percussion ensemble thing, oh, which is really fun. And uh, wrote for them. And um, but then at some point I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do what I, I set out to do, which is move to Nashville. Yeah. So I moved to Nashville in '97. Um, I was just recounting the story to someone this morning because someone asked me if I've ever heard of Boomtown Percussion. I was like, yeah, I, I worked there, <laughs> I lived there. Yeah. Um, I, I there was a there was a drum shop in um, in Nashville uh, called Boomtown. Oh, and I remember that was downtown. It was. Um, the building doesn't even exist anymore. It was on Eighth Avenue, and um, I had met the guys from Boomtown from when I worked at Kansas City Drumworks in Kansas City when I lived up there. Yeah. So I met these guys, and I was like, "Hey, Richard." And he was like, he was looking at me like, "Hey, you know, I, I recognize you, but I don't know where I know you from." Kind of yeah. thing. I'm like, "Hey, I'm Jim Riley. I, I met you when I was working at Kansas City Drumworks. I came and took a tour of your shop." And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I live here now. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm fine. I said, I'm looking for a job. Well, they had just let somebody go at Boomtown. So he said, yeah, interview with my, my manager this afternoon. So I interviewed with the manager, got the job. I don't know how, but I convinced them to let me stay at the shop because I was literally homeless. I had no place to go. So they let me. And you had no girlfriend. So you I had no were girlfriend. I did have a dog. I did have a pickup truck. You had two mouths to feed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was living at the shop. I was like Sling Blade. I mean, they were locking me in the shop at, at night. And then, you know, just like in Sling Blade, they, they ended up giving me a key after a while. Wow. And um, I lived at the shop and, and, and worked there. And uh, I wasn't doing any building or custom drum stuff. I was just working in the retail shop, which mm-hmm. I had done before. You know, so, you know, understanding, you know, you know, you know, stock numbers for, for Remo drum heads and all that sure, stuff, which sure. I still know all that stuff. Right. Um, and uh, the drum shop ended up closing under very um, weird circumstances. Uh, there were, you know, federal laws being broken. Mm. And uh, so all of a sudden, um, due to my own lack of preparation, I was once again homeless. homeless. <laughs> and so I was uh, living in my truck. Wow. Um, with my dog, which was the only way I would have done it. Yeah. Because yeah, if I didn't have the dog, I wouldn't have felt safe doing that. So I lived in my truck for about two weeks uh, until Rich called me. wasn't calling me to get me off the streets. He was calling me to see if I could uh, feed his cat while he went out of town for two weeks. <laughs> so he, he called me on my pager back then. Uh, and then uh, so I called him back and uh, we talked and um, he... he he said, well, will you watch my uh, my cat for two weeks? I'm like, yeah, give me the keys to that little apartment of yours. Sure, we all watch your cat. Yeah. So uh, he gave me the keys to his apartment, and I moved in. Nice. You know? Yeah. And so he came back, and I was like, well, what's your rent on this place? And he told me what the rent was, and I gave him half of that cash and told him it was, I was his new roommate. <laughs> and, uh, and so then we were we were roommates and yeah. just both trying to make our way back then. And uh, it was really fun. We knew each other. For a little bit at North Texas, okay. We we briefly passed. You know, there was a year there where he was starting his masters, and I was finishing my bachelor's. Nice. Uh, and so we we knew each other there, and we, unbeknownst to each other, moved to Nashville the same month. Oh wow! In uh, okay. in ninety seven. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, I just started uh, just hitting the clubs, man. Just yeah. just trying to meet people. 
Uh, and um, I remember Ira Dean, who was who was the bass player, one of the members of Trick Pony. He yep. was very nice. And yep. He got me an audition for the Dixie Chicks, which I was very glad later that I didn't get. Um, it was a very weird audition. Uh, but uh, musically, it was fun. But yeah. the other parts of it, you know, were, mm. were really weird. Mm. Um, and then uh, was introducing me to people and helped me, you know, get a couple of gigs to get me started, which I was very appreciative of. And um, so if I had if I had gigs, like I think I had gigs like four nights a week. The other three nights I was going out and I was in clubs and I was sitting sure. in and meeting people. Sure. And I did that. You know, for uh, a year, and finally, about eleven months in, I got the. Uh, I had a gig, uh, from, you know, I think it was like, two to six or something like that at uh, at Legends Corner with a friend of mine named Mike Siler. No, I'm sorry, it was six to ten with Mike Siler. Okay. Um, and uh, the bass player was a guy named Steve Ledford, and Steve ended up getting the gig with Mark Chestnut. Mm-hmm. Long story short, he ended up pulling me onto that gig, mm-hmm. and so all of a sudden I went from you know some kid that was playing local gigs to um, my next my next gig was with Mark. Uh, it was on it was on national TV. It was the first season of The View. Oh wow! And, um, and so, you know, with Barbara Walters and it was yeah. Star Jones back then. And, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, that, that whole crew. And so um, my first gig with Mark was on national TV. And uh, so did you audition for Mark? Or I did, did not. Did not. The, the guys the came player? and heard me play. Okay. The bass player brought the guitar player and the piano player to hear me play. And they just kind of went, yeah. Because that's an interesting distinction because uh, in past some of the interviews we've had, um, some of the players will talk about the audition process, uh, but there's a lot of stories about uh, someone that is already has an artist gig, and the, the drummer makes an impression upon them, and they're just they're brought in, and there's there's that yeah. Well, there's I mean, something about the, that's the most of it. That's most of it. People yeah. generally don't want to audition because if you're auditioning people, you're admitting that you don't know exactly who or what you want and sometimes you, you have to do that but in some situations you go this guy would be perfect let's not do this whole dog and pony show this guy's the perfect candidate for us let's pick him up well, and there were times as, as as md with rascal flats i was able to do that i mean i literally had you know uh, our fiddle player that we had for you know 12 years um you know i just I found out he was available. I told the guys, hey, we can get this guy. And, um, you know, he was with us for, for 12 years. Wow. Uh, and he was amazing. He was the perfect guy for the job. There yeah. wouldn't have been anybody that would have been better for the job awesome. than him. But uh, there were other situations, um, like 10 years ago when we hired uh, a utility steel player and a, um, and a guitar player, where we had to have the combinations right. So I knew mm-hmm. some great candidates, but we had to make sure that those two players, that their talents fit together, yeah. and that, that, that the whole thing was going to vibe well. And, um, and we just recently had some auditions um, where we hired a guitar keyboard utility player, and we hired a guitar, and it turns out being a guitar mandolin utility player. And um, just making sure that their talents 
lined up and were complimentary. Yeah. And the guys that we hired were not the big name guys. There were guys that had much larger pedigrees, mm-hmm. you know, attached to them. But we went with the players that we felt like were going to work best for us. Unfortunately, that happens sometimes. So, I mean, you know, you think you're the new guy in town and you've got no chance because you're going against this guy who's done this and this guy who's done this. Sometimes, um, you know, if people believe in you... There's um, many other factors. There are other factors. And, you know, the, the, some of the factors were just, you know, these guys were super prepared and, mm. um, and they were really excited about the prospect of playing the gig. And when you've been doing a gig as long as we've been doing it, mm-hmm. you want to make sure you have excitement. I'm always excited to play the gig. Yeah. But, you know, we wanted to make sure we had some, some people that were coming in that were just as or more excited to be playing the gig than I I love am. that. I love you that. You know, That's and really so, great. you know, because people, that, that translates yeah. to people on the gig, you yeah. know. Um, so I got that gig with Mark Chestnut. My first gig was on national television. Um, interesting thing about getting that gig is all of a sudden, it was like my legal name changed. I went from being Jim Riley to Jim Riley that plays with Mark Chestnut. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's how everybody knew me. And it was it was great for me uh, because it gave me something professionally to be attached to that was, you know, on a, on a high level. So finally I was, you know, I was on a tour bus. Um, we were playing big shows. We were playing television. Uh, we were traveling and uh, we were going to Europe and you know it was it was amazing it was I was like wow I'm, I'm like really doing something that I had set out to do um, my only issue was that Mark's kind of heyday had been you know years before I was there and I'd kind of missed the days when it was like oh we were playing 10,000 seats and mm-hmm. you know um, had played this and this and, and I, I was like that was fine because I was really enjoying the gig but there was a part of me that was like, boy, it would be great to just get with something from its inception and mm-hmm. kind of ride through the heydays and see, sure. you know, what that's like. And um, so a couple of buddies of mine and I had been playing some gigs downtown, um, Jay DeMarcus uh, and, um, and our, our new young friend, Jodon Rooney, who was really just fresh off the boat. He was 23 mm-hmm. years old. He'd just moved from, he'd been living in Arkansas, and I was originally from Pitcher, Oklahoma, and, you know, was just destined for stardom, you know, because he was so talented and great guy, good looking. He just had everything you wanted. And so I'm playing gigs with Jay, and he pulled Joe Dodd into some things, and he pulled his cousin Gary into some local gigs we were playing. And then Jay and Jodon, Jay was Shelley Wright's musical director. Right. They were on tour with Mark Chestnut in 99. So that summer, um, you know, I would see Jay and Jodon every weekend. And then we were playing gigs during the week. Right. And those guys had been working on getting a record deal. And when they got a record deal, um, long story short, they called me and uh, asked me to see if I would come out on the road with them. Yeah. So uh, that was 2000. So at the time, I was playing with Mark Chestnut. Yeah. I was playing with Hank Williams third, Hank Williams three. Oh, wow. You know, kind of doing some rockabilly, punkabilly stuff with yeah. him. Yeah. And I basically gave both of those gigs up to, to start playing with uh, with the Flats. And, you know, I, at the time, you know, Mark had, you know, I mean, a dozen number one hits. Mm-hmm. And Rascal Flats didn't even have a record out. Mm-hmm. But... I 
believed in these guys. I heard the music. I believed in the, the people. I believed in the music. I believed in the direction. And so, and I, at the time, I was able to take a chance. So I took a chance. Right. right. And, um, and, and, and did it. And it ended up, you know, being, uh, you know, uh, a, a great opportunity for sure. me. Sure. And has continued to be a great right. opportunity. Right. You say at the time you were willing to take that risk. Yeah. So, before family, before all that stuff. Yeah, that yeah. I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't have a house. Uh, <laughs> it was funny. Um, the president of the American Federation of Musicians is a guy named Ray Hare. Mm-hmm. Ray Hare at the time was the president of the local Dallas uh, Musicians Union, which I was a member of. Yeah. They actually lent me the money to buy my truck in 1994 when I was teaching school in 94. Wow. I was a, I was a school teacher uh, my first year out of college. And um, so I had this job. And then all of a sudden, I just said, you know, I am going to um, quit this job because I'm not pursuing my dream Mm-hmm. Of uh, of becoming uh, you know a professional player. I'm, I'm teaching and I want to teach, but I don't want to get into this capacity yet. So um, so I took uh, I basically quit that job, and at some point I called Ray and everybody at the union over there, and I was like, um, you know, I uh, I can't pay you right now. Because I don't have any money. Because I'm not making any money. But I promise you, I'm going to pay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay this truck off. You know. And I moved to Nashville. So basically, I was telling them that I was abandoning them, but that I was not going to do it permanently. Yeah. And um, that was the only responsibility I had uh-huh. was paying off that truck. I didn't have a house. I didn't have kids. I didn't yeah. have any. I had this dog that I had inherited. You know, from a girlfriend, and uh, so um, I was able to take considerable more risk than say I can now. Right. Because I was, you know, if it if the Rascal Flats thing didn't work out, I was young. I didn't have responsibilities. It wasn't going to be some devastating financial yeah. blow if it didn't work out. I just you know, we would have went okay. I guess on to the next thing. Yeah. You know. But I was able to take that risk and willing to take that risk, just like I was when I was when I was teaching. And I decided, you know what, this is a great gig. I have a coveted teaching gig here in the Dallas area. Which, if you know anything about that area, teaching gigs there. I mean, there's a lot of educators and not a lot of teachers, and a lot of people I um, interviewed for that job, and I got it, and I could still have that job right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I took the risk of quitting that gig, which was a very unpopular decision with, like, my mom, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. And uh, then I moved up to Kansas City for a while, and I got established in two years. I got very established. I had a lot of things going on, and I once again took everything that I did and kind of threw it over my shoulder and said, I'm going to Nashville, and I'm going to take a risk, right. and I'm going to do this thing. And then right. I had this great gig, a gig that still exists right. with Mark. Right. And um, I said, you know what, this is a great gig, and he's promised me we're always going to work, which they still work, you know, yeah. to this day. But, um, 
it's just the kind of guy he is. He just loves to play. He loves playing music. Yeah. But I, 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 I kind of took that gig and I threw it over my shoulder and said, let's, let's, let's go try something new. And so I was willing to take that risk. And, uh, and you know, the rewards were, uh, were great. I mean, you know, because, I mean, I'm still doing that gig, you know, 15-plus years later. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's... It's amazing. But, yeah, I was able to take that risk. I mean, now I have, you know, three kids, and I've got a wife, and I've got a mortgage, and I've got... Right. Uh, I don't have any car payments, which, by the way, I ended up paying that truck off early. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> they didn't uh, break your legs. And they did not break my legs, and I paid it off, in fact, <laughs> before it was due. Yeah. Um, and uh, now Ray Hare is the president of the International uh, uh, Musicians, wow. uh, American Federation of Musicians. And uh, it's funny because I, I have yet to connect back with Ray oh, about fine. that. But uh, but I follow along with what yeah. he's doing and the good work, the great work that he's doing. So uh, next time you try to bring your cymbal bag or your guitar on a, on a plane, you can thank Ray Hare. Oh, yeah. There yeah. was a recent article that uh, just was circulating. Um, yeah, and that's, that's all Ray's work. That's, that's great. Ray's work. That's great. But... Uh, you know, now I'm a member of the of have been for many years the the Nashville Musicians okay. Union. I just I, I just think it's important for especially young listeners or anybody that's kind of pursuing this as a career to know there is a time to take chances and you have to put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the sometimes the greater risk, the greater reward. Now I'm going to just be very honest and say, to me, I took a very conservative approach to my success mm-hmm. I knew that I was a great player I had great musical instincts um, I knew that if I moved to Nashville that I could be the guy where you've got these guys that live in the studios mm-hmm. and all they do is pump out these new records to these bands that are born and these artists that are born with no drummers and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're looking for the best drummer they could they could have and yeah. so I knew that if I moved to Nashville, I could be that guy. That's the way I could start my career. Yeah. It was calculated, but I felt enough confidence in my abilities to be able to do that. Sure. Um, here's some things that I didn't do. You know, I didn't um, start my own band. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the singer of my own band, which, you know, in later years, I, I've ended up, you know, doing some things like that. And you start to go, you know, you look at people like Dave Grohl. Yeah. And you go, yeah. man, I mean, uh, you look at people like Phil Collins. Yeah. Uh, you look at people that kind of go, man, talk about laying it all on the line. Right. You know? Right. Um, that's like a different level of laying it on the line. Or even just the idea of going, you know what, I'm going to put my trust in three other guys and we're going to be a band. And if this thing explodes, it may explode this big part of my career that I've invested in this thing. But you look at Steve Gorman, you know, and the success that he had with the Black Crows. And, you know, you don't get that kind of success without risk. Right. You know, um, my risk was calculated. Yeah. I think there are guys, you know, if they ri- they're willing to risk more and greater parts of their their career, that the reward can be even greater. Right. Uh, that was not something that I chose to do. You know, when I was doing my Nashville Number System book, I had originally 
um, decided I was going to hire singers to sing these songs that I had written. I wrote all of the songs in that book. And um, so I had a singer in the studio, and we started on one of the tracks. And I said, okay, I'm going to... The the music was all done. So I said, I'm going to sing you a scratch track of this thing, just so you know what what we're going for. And after I sang that scratch track, I went... I can do this. <laughs> I can sing these songs. Yeah. And I won't have to tell these guys every inflection and live with the inflections that I don't want to live with yeah. because I'm such a perfectionist with this stuff. So, I mean, you know, if you listen to my Nashville Number System book, I mean, those are those are 10 songs that I wrote, put my own my own feelings, my own uh they're real songs. I mean, these are they're not like written for some sort of academic purpose. They're, I mean, they are, but they aren't. You right, know? I, mean, okay, sure. I wrote them to be tailored to the book, but I wrote them to be real songs. Okay. And um, as a singer, I wrote, I sang six of the, the ten songs. Oh, wow. And the other four, my wife sang. Wow. Who's amazing. Um, so, um, so, in a sense, that book became not only a book that I'm very proud of and you know, I was just playing a local gig recently, and a, and a drummer stopped by the gig, and he just stopped by and said, um, "I just want to thank you for you know writing that book." And I mean, I was up on stage, but he still said, "I just want to thank you for writing that book." And then you know, he ended up walking out of the club later. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, the fact that that you know has has helped people and it changes people's lives. Um, I'm very grateful for. But I'm also proud of the fact that, in a way, it's also kind of like, you know, like an album of my own. Yeah, making. yeah, that's, I never knew that. That's, that's crazy, man. That's, yeah. It's really, it's really cool. And so, but, but it starts to make you think, well, what if I had been that brave when I was 28 years old or 27 years old and, you know, just decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a rock star, man. I'm just going to do that, you know. Um, maybe um, I would be in a much worse position than I'm in now. Maybe I would be in an unimaginable, incredible position mm-hmm. of, you know, of, but, you know, the truth is, is that when I look back at why I got into doing what I do, I love playing music. Yeah. I love teaching. Yeah. And I can't think, you know, when I think about, like the description of success that I was just giving, it doesn't really seem to me better than what I have right now. Mm-hmm. I know many guys yeah. that were, and I'm putting up my quotations, rock stars. Yes. You know, for a time. Yes. But then that season passes, yeah. and then all of a sudden they're they're rock stars that don't their gig doesn't exist anymore, or mm-hmm. there's no market for their gig, and. Their time for rock stardom came and went. They thought it was going to be there forever, so they spent all the money. Mm-hmm. And they're in a much worse position. Whereas right. in my position, my my situation has been very slow and steady, and it's been an incline virtually, you know, for you know the last seventeen years. Right, right. And I've had a career, and I've been able to be viable for a long time. So in a sense, like I'm better off. Me personally, I'm better off having probably not gotten what I would have thought I wanted when I was six years old because I have, I have, uh, you know, steady, steady work, 
Um, I have a normal life with my family. Um, yes. Yeah. And like, I'm not a millionaire in any by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't really worry about money. Mm-hmm. You know, I have my. You know, I, I can provide for my family. And if I was really like famous or something, like. I wouldn't be able to invite kids into my house to take lessons, invite people into my house, you know. I mean, I'd have TMZ at my back door, you know. You know, I'm very happy with the anonymity of being able to go on stage with Rascal Flatts and rock and be acknowledged by the fans and then walk off stage and people literally don't know who I am. And I'm totally okay with that um, because I enjoy playing music and I enjoy teaching and I'm able to do those things. And the fact that I make my my living teaching, playing, you know, writing music, writing about music, and that's all I do. That's how I define... It's a very small percentage of people that are able to do that. That's how I define my success. It's not by any sort of amount of money, but I mean, if people people have a job that they enjoy, and then they're able to play with the band on the weekends... And they're able to express themselves musically. To me, I really feel like they're just as successful as I am. I agree with you. you. Know? Yeah, I wouldn't have probably twenty years ago, but I do now. Yeah, because it's just I just don't get into that. There's a whole you know, uh, just measuring contest of you know who's got the most money, who's got the most hits, who's got mm-hmm. the most fame. I'm just really it's none of that stuff really appeals to me. Uh, you know, I, I look at people if if someone's teaching and they're playing local gigs, um, and, that, and that's all that? they do, I go, you are literally just as successful as I am. We are on the same. Did you we, always think that way, or was there a time when you were young? Because I'll admit that that it was it was difficult for me to see the I bigger think that picture. It's something that you. I think it's something you come to. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, when you're when you're a little kid, you have this idea of what you want to do, and in a sense, I'm doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to play on hit records. I wanted to play on the Tonight Show and play on the Grammys, and mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to 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 be on a tour bus. And travel the world, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, in a sense, uh, I, I've been able to do all of that stuff yeah. to some degree. Yeah. And um, so I've been able to fill, fulfill my childhood dreams, but I've also been able to realize like more adult dreams of you know having oh, a family yeah. and having For sure. um, having you know just a regular life. Like you come here and you see my basement, which is this drum craziness place you go upstairs <laughs> yeah. and there's no drums yeah. i have a regular life with a regular family and, and if we want to talk about drums we come down here you know my yeah, sure. my, my my kids are down here all the time yeah you know but um i wanted to have a regular life and uh and you know i have just as much of a sense of accomplishment with my family as i do with my career and it's ongoing i mean mm-hmm. i want to make sure like because right, you know, I play with Rascal Flatts. You know, we're we're listening to this in 2015. If we're listening to this on an archive, one day maybe the Rascal Flatts gig will be gone, mm-hmm. or I won't be on the gig. Both of which are realistic possibilities. Um, I will always be teaching. I will always mm-hmm. be playing. I will always mm-hmm. be writing. Mm-hmm. It's just there's going to be a different percentage of my my financial distributions that are from playing like with right now rascal flats is my main breadwinning gig but this gig 
down here teaching is great. I, I'm hoping in a couple of years my new book will be a nice little source of, of income. Mm -hmm. That's not the reason I wrote it. You should never write a book to try to make money. You should write a book because it's on your heart that mm -hmm. you have this material that yeah. you have to get out because I've heard from many people that are successful uh, music authors and they're like, do not write books because you want to make money. You <laughs> write books because you, you want to get this, this uh, material out, yeah. which is what I'm doing. But yeah. I'm always going to do the things that I'm doing and I will feel no less successful Sure. Um, if I'm not playing with Rascal Flatts, than if I am. But it's but you've had many plates spin. Just I mean, you're you're thinking about the got, bigger picture. I've always got a lot of plates spinning. That's great. I think about That's it great. as a portfolio of work. Rascal Flatts. If it was a pie chart, Rascal Flatts is this big chunk of the pie right now. Yeah, exactly. And then my teaching is the next chunk of the pie. Yes. And my clinics is the next chunk of the pie. And my um, publishing and like the articles that I write for Modern Drummer are another smaller piece of the pie. Right. But at different points of my career, that pie charts, different parts of it, there sure. have been times in my career where producing has been a bigger part of oh, the wow. pie. Right, right now, it's a, it's, it's a small piece of the pie. Um, but uh, I always try to keep a, a large, diverse pro portfolio of work together so that, you know, I don't end up being one of these guys that's like, Oh, I've been playing with this gig for 17 years and it ends and I'm so surprised. Right. right I'm like, yeah, right. dude, you're playing the gig for 17 years. Yeah. You had to know it was going to end sometime. Right, and, right. And what preparations did you make? I mean, my preparations, my wife and I talk about, you know, every couple months, how much we owe on the house and how, and how soon we're going to have this house paid off. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, without getting... Uh, you know, too biblical. The uh, the borrower is slave to the lender, yeah, and yeah. I don't want to owe anybody anything. Sure. You know, sure. and I'll feel really comfortable if I can, you know, get to a point in about five years where this house is paid off, my cars are paid off. I don't owe anybody anything, mm -hmm. and then I'm like, hey, if the gig goes away. Yeah, Fine. right, right, What's, right. I, what, what kind of bills do I have? I've got to pay my taxes? Your simplifying your financial you know, burden. That, to me, you know, you talk about winning and losing. That's winning. Yeah. You know, that's winning. If you can go, I own this house. Right, right, You know, right, right. and, you know, all i got to do is pay my property taxes. Yeah, and, that's pretty and, awesome. I, and my bills, and, and, and I'm good. And, and at that point, I can afford to make a lot less money. And be comfortable. Exactly. Because the other thing is, and, and drummers, musicians don't talk about this a lot, is um, if you think I'm not saving a huge portion of what I make with Rascal Flats, you're crazy. I mean, I've got um, a Roth IRA. I've got 401k. Oh, well, I've got uh, I've got a full portfolio of investments. Um, uh, you know, we have a... a, a an emergency cash account, mm. wow. uh, which I've had to dip into a little bit for for my book, because you know that's it's very expensive to be producing a hundred something tracks. Right, music. right, right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm setting myself up so that when I get to a retirement age, I have a comfortable financial portfolio. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's important because I don't want to have to play gigs when I'm 65 years old. Mm. I don't want to have to play them. Yeah. I want to play gigs, yeah. but I want to play gigs because I want to play gigs, not because I have to.
hired with Rascal Flatts, I was the last guy hired. They hired a guy named Jimmy Manningly, who um, was back then, he had just gotten off the Garth Brooks gig and is now back with Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was playing fiddle and acoustic guitar with us. Uh, it's a guy named Bo Cooper, who was playing keyboards, who now plays keyboards with David Foster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an amazing player. So we and I was the third side guy that was hired. I was the last side guy that was hired, and Bo was the musical director, and I was the drummer. And um, I think, kind of long story short, the guys felt like they loved the band that they had, but they felt like they would be more comfortable if I would, um, if I would take over the duties. Of musical director, mm. so um, the second year I took those duties over, and um, you know back then it really just entailed just being a communicator to the artists, to uh, and, and and you know uh, conveying their wishes to the band. Right. You know later it became I was you know hiring musicians for the mm-hmm. band, mm-hmm. hiring subs because back then we had to kind of patch something we weren't a huge organization back then yeah so we had to we had to have a couple of subs come in and, and I had to arrange for those people prepare those people um, later when we were hiring you know more permanent musicians you know I had to seek out people uh, set up the auditions come up with the material make sure the band is prepared um, when you have musicians that have many talents like some of these guys play four and five instruments. I had to decide what instruments are going to be the best ones for us to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I have to deal with the computer and the click tracks and any backing tracks, like if we want to use a tambourine yeah. part or we want to use like a synth part, um, I have to make sure that all that stuff is prepared and is ready to go. So I work with an engineer to make sure, you know, if we're taking the song down a half step and up two clicks, mm-hmm. that we do all the math to get that all that all happening. If we do um, if we do medleys and there's there's a ramp up in the tempo, you know, I've got to work I, I work with an engineer named Mark Meeker um, and uh, and, you know, we, we have to reverse engineer things. Like, we have to think totally backwards from what most recording engineers have to think about. We're taking tracks and we're applying them to the live setting. Oh, okay. And, you know, yeah. building click tracks for our live settings. Mm-hmm. So we might have transitions that have to have click ramp-ups. You know, there's and all of this stuff is because we use... Um, video materials in our show right. that are synced up to the music, mm-hmm. but in order to do that, you have to you know be playing with a click track, um, which uh, if you're a young player, practicing with a metronome or practicing with tracks that are, you know are you know to a click, yeah, uh, it is a very good thing because we all have this tendency to either rush or drag in certain instances, and you know my my job. I have to make the music feel really great, burying the click right down the middle. Mm-hmm. You know that's what I have to do, um, and that's different from the way that guys used to think about music in the '70s and the '80s. Right. right. Uh, but you know that's just the world that we live in. It's it's more of a quantized world, and so yeah. as a drummer, you have to kind of make it feel good in that world, which is more difficult sometimes. Um, in later years, it's become different things from. 
Um, I've written uh, choir arrangements. I've interfaced with orchestras and made sure that we're on the same page. Oh, wow. um, on our last tour, um, we did an a cappella piece where all eight guys were singing, and I actually arranged and did all the composition wow. for that. Okay. Um, you know, this year we're doing a drum feature where Jay, Gary, and Jodon are are playing drums, um, and you know, I had to compose something for that and teach that to them. And then um, there's been other years where I have these intros to the show where I've had to write, you know, like a classical introduction to the show. Or I've had to write like a, you know, almost like, you know, Call of Duty sounding, you mm-hmm. know, kind of intro to the show and compose that. And, uh, you know, uh, on the last tour, I had to do some Foley work for the intro. You know, there's just a lot of things that had to do. I mean, there was this, it was the Rewind Tour, so I had to come up with the sound effects for putting a, a cassette into a, a player. Okay, sure. And then to make it rewind. Right. Well, if you take the actual sample of a cassette going into a player, it sounds like this. Well, they're looking at this cassette, and it's 20 feet by 20 feet. So a cassette that, that's 20 feet by 20 feet doesn't go... It goes... So yeah. you have to take that cassette sound right. and combine it with a door sound. I and see. then you take the rewind sound of a, of a, of a cassette and you combine it with a, uh, a drill. So we took a drill and sampled the <laughs> drill going... To give it, you know, more... Sure. You know, and it's, it's, you know, just a lot of things you wouldn't think of. Also, we've done... Like, when we did the... Uh, Crossroads with Journey, which you can still find on like cmt.com, which is really fun to watch, by the way. Um, I had to you know, write charts to, for these Journey songs and make sure that our guys learn these Journey songs the right way. I see. You know? yeah. And then um, when we were done with it, I ended up with the tracks in my hand making sure... You know, little fixes here and there. Say one of the Journey guys hits a wrong note on a Rascal Flatts song. Mm. I'm the guy that has to make sure that it gets fixed. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And the, the, there's, it, it's, it's a pretty long list of things that I've, that I've grown into. But uh, I'm, I'm comfortable the with that. The many hats outside of drums. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. Which and, in your music education... Has well, and that, it goes back to the national number system thing because I have to be able to communicate in the same language that these musicians... You know, there's the old joke, you know, what do you call the guy that hangs out with uh, with musicians? And it's the drummer, you know? Yeah. And, and essentially, for many years, a lot of us have lived up to that. So we can't... Mm-hmm. We, we have to be better than that. If you right. want to be a musical director, you have to be able to speak the language that the rest of the band is, right, is speaking. Right, right. And that's chords and numbers yeah. and understanding that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, so I fluently speak Nashville number system, yeah. but I also, um, like, we're going out to Vegas and we're doing a thing with a marching band. Right. And they wanted a song arranged for marching band. So guess who did the marching band arrangement? Wow. You know, um and uh, I did that on uh, my iPad. I do a lot of it on my iPad. I, there's a, there's a, uh, the program called Notion. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and I've been using that one, and it's a notation software, sort of like Finale or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's on the iPad. I did the whole arrangement on there. Oh, that's awesome. Pretty neat. Yeah. And when I did the acapella arrangements, I did that in GarageBand. I actually sang all eight parts into into GarageBand, <laughs> and then you know worked it out yeah. that way. Wow, that's awesome. Was there anybody in the band that uh, that wasn't a singer that you were like, okay, guys, we, we got no, nope. no, everybody, there, there. everybody sang. As a matter of fact, when I came up with, okay, we have eight guys. You have to think about how am I going to assign this because I'm not just going to write eight part harmony. You know, there has to be a system here. I'm going okay. So we have Gary singing lead. That's mm-hmm. one. We're going to have to have somebody singing bass. That's two. I had made the decision to have somebody kind of doing a rhythmic beatbox thing. Mm-hmm. So that's three. Now I've got five left. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Jay and Joe Don kind of singing their own separate duop part, and then I, that left three of us to sing three part harmony. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my assignment in my brain of how I was going yeah. to deal with it. And was there, any, was there any guide from them, like, hey, this is kind of what we're thinking, or they're saying, this is, we want to do this. They literally said, we want to do this. And where they got the idea was when I was with Mark Chestnut in 99, they saw us do an a cappella thing. It was, we did the Billy Joel for the longest time. Yeah, thing. yeah, sure. And, and that stuck in their heads. They're like, man, we got to do that someday. So at the beginning of the tour, Jay calls me up and says, hey, you remember that arrangement you guys did for, for the longest time? I went, yeah. Um, I could figure it back out. You know, he said, uh, so I went on my iPad and I just kind of did like a verse and a chorus, you know. Yeah. And then before I ever had a chance to show it to him, he was like, well, hey, you know, I have some other ideas. Um, <laughs> we talked about like, you know, Yesterday by the Beatles. Oh, so I started, I did a verse and a chorus of that. Never got to show it to him because then the next day I get a call and says, you know what we need? This is what we need. Take a Rascal Flatts song. Take any Rascal Flatts song that you think that's not in the set list right now that you think would be a good acapella song and arrange that. Wow. That was the guideline I had. Okay. So I thought about there was a song, um, Love You Out Loud. Um, and uh, I thought that, you know, I thought I just could hear it in that way so I changed the uh, the intro from kind of a one major thing to a six minor which six minor is a relative it basically shares the same a lot of the same notes as the one major so um, it's just the darker version of it Mm. so I changed the intro to be minor instead of major um, but didn't change the melodies and uh, and then you know kind of came up with a system of how I was going to do it and uh you know, arranged that one. I did. I was out in my backyard with the iPad, with my headphones on, with my kids playing in the backyard with the neighbor kids. So, like, I did a verse and a chorus of it. No instrument with me. I just sang all the parts in. So you can hear me singing. And the kids. The kids <laughs> on, on playing in the background times eight. Because, oh, right. Because there's eight track. tracks. So this is me watching my kids singing parts in. So... But you, you hear the verse and chorus, and you kind of go, okay, I get it. It's in the wrong key. It's not in the right tempo, you know. Um, so they go, yeah, we like that. So then I went, you know, the next day after they said they liked it, I went, you know, uh, down here, and I, you know, in the middle of the night when it was quiet, and just sang all eight parts and made sure I was, you know, you know in the right key and all that stuff. And then, um, you know, I thought it was going to be really difficult, but 
Um, everybody in the band sang. And what I thought was going to happen was I was like, you know, I'm going to do this beautiful seven-part harmony thing. And uh, and I'm going to end up being the guy having to beatbox. Oh, yeah. You know, sure, sure. because everyone else is going to be singing. So immediately, uh, our keyboard player was like, I want to sing bass. I'm like, you got it. He's got this big kind of radio voice, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it, so he was perfect for, for the, that. And then I went up to our fiddle player and I said, hey, man. I said, um, if you had the choice between singing a harmony part or beatboxing, what would you choose? He said, I think I'd choose beatboxing. I said, okay, you got it. Yeah. So then he was the beatbox guy. And, uh, and then uh, I ended up being one of the three-part harmony guys. And I would take kind of the nastiest one like there was one where someone's singing the root someone's singing the flat seven mm-hmm. and I would be the guy that would take the, the you know the weirdest notes wow you know so Impressive. that you know someone else didn't have to do that yeah so um, so that's that's the way we did it wow so you can actually see that on YouTube you know you can look up because uh, the other song we did was Happy Pharrell's Happy gotcha and um, there's a lot of clips of that um, you know, Rascal Flats acapella, you can find happy and you can find love you out loud. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting stuff. It was fun. And, uh, you know, but now we're on to our new tour. We're going to Las Vegas in uh, two weeks and, um, doing some, doing some new things. Nice. Uh, I just want to say thanks, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank and taking you. the time again, as soon as you got into my time, it was very valuable. I'm thinking, oh, man, thanks. We're putting me in that time Absolutely. Slot. No, I mean, I, you know, talking to drummers about, you know, how to help them make their careers better is something that is very valuable to me. Um, you know, I'm doing my thing, and, you know, my thing is my thing. And so I don't like look at people and go, oh, you know, I don't want them to get better because then they'll be my competition. I'm like, no, man, you know, they're, they're going to do their thing. Yeah. And I want people to be successful at what they're doing. 